So today we're in James chapter 4. We, we, if you're a guest with us, we work through the scriptures. We just pick, I pray about which book to be teaching through, and we teach right through the book. And so we, we don't miss a thing. <laughs> Sometimes I go, oh my gosh, how am I, what am I going to say about this passage? <laughs> but the Lord's always faithful, and his word is always good and valid. So James chapter 4, 1 through 6, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? Uh-oh, I forgot my glasses just a moment. James 4, 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's of no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in our previous passage, actually this morning in, in uh, our Bible study, we were talking about how James flows together and how the, the ideas and the thoughts all connect and interwoven, and you can understand it better if you follow that flow of thought. The previous passage, uh, James had introduced two kinds of wisdom, a wisdom that's from above and a wisdom that's from beneath. A earthly wisdom and a heavenly wisdom. And he told us that earthly wisdom often was an expression of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He may have had in mind um, some people that we saw in the beginning of chapter 3, people trying to be leaders in the church, wanting the praise of man, wanting to be recognized, uh, wanting to be important, uh, feeling their value came from men respecting them. And he taught that the earthly wisdom was selfishly ambitious and jealous and that it would result in disorder and every vile practice. But, but by contrast, heavenly wisdom is peaceable, gentle, and produces a harvest of righteousness. So now he goes on as we get into chapter 4 about how that destructive nature of earthly wisdom, of, of promoting yourself, of pushing your ego forward, of, of wanting to be the top dog, how it could be so destructive in a, in a community. In verse 1 again, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
So elaborating on that disorder resulting from earthly wisdom, James tells us that the quarrels and fights spring from the passions that are at war within us. There is within all of us a natural desire for pleasure. That's not a bad thing. It's just, uh, it's just the way we're made. It's how we, how we go about trying to, to meet that need that's naturally within us. God put a hunger in our hearts that only he can satisfy. The world offers one kind of pleasure and a pleasure that's very self-focused and temporary, but God offers another kind that's, that's outward focused, focused on him and those created in his image. Our old nature is at war within and always tempting us with what would please that old carnal nature. That doesn't mean all physical pleasures are evil. They're evil when they're out of God's boundaries and when they become the priority in our lives. We find ourselves somewhat satisfied with them, but then we need more the next time to reach that same satisfaction whether a drug or money or sex, satisfaction is seen as just a little bit more. Someone asked a very wealthy person how much money was enough, and their answer was very telling, a little bit more. It's always a little bit more. The flesh nature is never content with what it has. The Greek word translated as pleasure here, and, and I find in this passage especially to get behind these words and to see their, their source of the words in Greek is, is really, it helps us understand the passage. The Greek word that's used for pleasure here is the same, uh, is the, where we get our word hedonism. John McMurray said, the best cure for hedonism is the attempt to practice it. In other words, <laughs> hedonism is always going to leave you wanting more while destroying you in the process. Our born-again spirit longs for that, that emptiness in us, that desire for pleasure. It longs for it to be filled, and the only way it can truly be filled, the only thing that's big enough to fill it, is, of course, Jesus. That's what that emptiness was created for. We find pleasure also in being God's instrument. We experience deep joy when we worship or when God works through us to encourage us, encourage others, or witness to others. There's two different means of pleasure that are at war with inside all of us. And Paul describes this war in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 17, he writes, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. If the spirit always won out, there would be no fights or quarrels within the church. That's our goal, right? But we know that that's not always the case. 
Because wherever there are humans, there are problems because that old selfish nature keeps trying to come out, even in the church. Now, I thank the Lord that there's been very little of that here in this church body in the last two decades. What a blessing. But every other church I've attended over the years has had some kind of serious conflict. We just heard of, we, in our Bible study this morning, we heard of the most bizarre one. A church split over uh, whipped cream on a dessert. <laughs> you know, one thing about the Bible is it's absolutely true to human nature. You know, the Bible says we are fallen and we look around us and we go, yep. That's right. <laughs> How could a church split over whipped cream? My goodness. Cool Whip or whipped cream? James summed it up, this, this search for pleasure in the physical, he summed it up as disorder and every vile practice. Well, we, we have this dilemma in the church of being welcoming to all, wanting everyone to come and hear the gospel, hear God's word. But at the same time, we have to confront disorder and every in this sinful behavior. Even those who've been in the world for years may find their justifying selfish behavior as standing for the truth. Our flesh is very conniving and it's very deceitful, Jeremiah said. Confronting this disorder must be done gently and with grace. Yet, no matter how faithfully we follow the Lord's leading, some conflicts will end in division. The wars that take place in the world and in the church are all a result of the wars within us. Verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, I don't think there were actually murders in the church that James was writing to, although some commentators thought it got that bad. Rather, I think James was describing as Jesus did that to hate someone is as bad as murder, is as guilty in God's eyes as murder. We do, you know, refer to character assassination. It's spreading lies to bring a person down. And then the accuser can take that person's coveted place. Coveting is to passionately want something to be, to be fix, fixated on that thing. And that often ends in the fighting and quarreling. Frustrated that someone has what we so desire stirs up this resentment and it results in fighting. Or perhaps you presume the person has done evil things so you let others know, gossip. But the motive is to take their place. The problem is that we reap what we sow. We take their place and someone says some lie about us and so it goes. James asked why we don't just ask. Well, if we did, it would expose our selfish ambitions. We don't ask God because we know he knows the motives of our hearts. Why would we dare come before the Lord and ask what we imagine would 
satisfy us. He's the last thing we want to think about when we're contemplating some questionable desire. Verse 3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If we have the audacity to ask or perhaps in ignorance of the holy nature of God we dare to ask, we won't get what we want because God already knows what we do with it. He'll not give us something that will harm us or keep us from him. And if we don't think he sees our heart, think again. Even when we don't think we'll spend it on our passions, he knows what we would do in the end. It reminds me of uh, when I asked for the gift of healing, you know. I thought, Lord, it would be so wonderful if I had the gift of healing and I could you know, then the church would fill up because people would come to be healed and then we could preach them the gospel. And the, that still small voice within said, yeah, and it'd go straight to your head. Thank you, Lord, for not giving us the things that would ruin us, amen. If we are insistent, though, in our rebellion, he may grant our request and send leanness to our soul. Psalm 106, verse 15. How do we spend the gifts of God on our passions, you might ask? Well, every created thing of God that brings pleasure can become the thing we turn to for our ultimate satisfaction, to, to fill that emptiness in us. In other words, the thing that we actually live for. The things we tend to prioritize, like money or sex or power or food, or some people idolize nature, sports teams, entertainment, and the list goes on and on. They're good gifts when they're used in their proper place and recognized as a gift from the one who deserves to be first in our lives. He's the source of all pleasure. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 1611, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Surveys have shown that the most contented people are those who practice a biblical lifestyle. Glorifying God and our desire for satisfaction can go hand in hand when he is our source of pleasure. But when we replace Jesus as our passion for the gifts that come from him, we are in rebellion towards our maker. We leave our first love for some temporary thing. And when those things become the things that dominate our thoughts and direct our actions, we have turned the things into idols. We have a new God, little g. We read about the Israelites doing the this with some pagan gods that were around them, and we wonder how could they have done such a thing, not realizing that we do the very same thing. Verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So to understand how the recipients of the letter would have understood these words, we need a biblical definition. 
John the Beloved tells us in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Fondness, and that's the Greek behind a friend, fondness toward the world and the love of the Father are antithetical. Now, of course, the world, again, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of the life, John is defined as this world. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Each is the enemy of the other. Our affections cannot be fixed on the things of the world, on pride and lust, and at the same time, loving God. Jesus said, you cannot love God and money. One will prevail to the exclusion of the other. So we should begin each day asking ourselves who we choose to love. To whom or what have we covenanted our love? You cannot worship your ego or your cravings and God at the same time. We live for self or we live for him. Throughout the Old Testament, worshiping other gods was referred to as adultery. And that's because God was the husband of the nation. Idolatry was being unfaithful to the provider and the protector of the nation. James is saying that the person who sees the world system that is under the power of Satan as his or her pleasure has joined the forces opposing God. And the Jews rejected the one who gave them the land, protected them from enemies, nurtured them with his word, gave them laws that guided them to healthy and prosperous lives, who was in covenant with them. And yet they chose wealth and possessions as the passion of their hearts. You see, the gods around Israel, the, the other gods uh, were gods of fertility, which meant success. Your sheep would produce, your crops would produce. And they thought the power or the wealth and the luxury they saw in nations around them came from worshiping those gods. That was the attraction of those gods is the desire for success, this world success. Some of you were here when Brother Luke preached through Hosea. And if you, if you missed that series, you can find it on my website, uh, bible-sermons.org. Hosea was commanded by God to marry a woman and her name was Gomer. She had two children with him, but then she would leave and find other lovers. He would go and find her and bring her back again and again. She'd leave again and finally, she was so destitute from her lifestyle that she ended up in slavery. And God told Hosea to go and buy her back because God was showing Israel 
through the life of Hosea and Gomer, how unfaithful they had been to him, but also how consistent he was to pursue them, to love them, to do whatever was necessary to bring them back to himself. James is telling the churches that some of us have taken a similar path to Gomer in a spiritual sense. We can see that's the case when we read the letters of Jesus to the churches in the book of Revelation. We saw in the previous chapter, idolatry was the praise of man. Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea pointed out their satisfaction with the material world when they were in such desperate need of what Jesus could provide for them. Unless we think we should become monks who deprive ourselves of all pleasure, Paul's letter to Timothy gives us a godly attitude. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, he wrote, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did you hear that? God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. We enjoy the gifts in moderation, not setting our heart on them, but thanking God for his goodness and grace. The pleasures that God provides in his creation may come and go, but his love is always with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. If the pleasures the world provides are our aim each day, then we are an enemy of God. Or as Paul wrote to Timothy, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. You become an enemy of God. James was writing to Christians it's a sober warning that though we are redeemed, we can fall for the allure of this sin-sick world system run by Satan. Paul described these wayward believers in his letter to the Philippians. He writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul and James have presented us with this clear possibility that though we're in church each week and call ourselves Christians, we may live as an enemy of Christ. And this challenges us to ask ourselves, what is it that we truly desire? What is it that we have set our hearts on? Is it more of this world or more of Jesus? Where we've set our affections is the truly the God of our life. Verse five, or do you suppose it is to know a purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. When I first was studying this and I took a minute to think about this passage, it just really gripped me. 
It's a very difficult verse for several reasons. First, it says that it, it is from Scripture, and yet we don't find this quotation anywhere in Scripture. We don't know its source. God does tell Israel that he is a jealous God. It's actually in the Ten Commandments. But unlike human jealousy, his desire for us is based purely on his love for us, not wanting us to be seduced by the world because it's harmful for us spiritually. He wants us to be passionate toward him as he is toward us because of his unselfish love for us. The other problem is, is the translation. Now, in Greek, there's no distinguishing between the human spirit and the Holy Spirit. It's just the word pneuma. So we have to decide by the context, context which is being referred to. Now, translators come down on several different sides of this issue, three different sides of the issue. NIV translated it as the human spirit tending to envy and be jealous. ESV and RSV translates it as God yearning over the human spirit. And New King James and the Living Bible translate it as the Holy Spirit whom God has placed in us watches over us with tender jealousy. And I lean toward the last of these interpretations. First, we must understand that each of us is a triune being. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. The unconverted soul has a lifeless spirit. There's no breath of God that brings life to the spirit until we accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. And that's why we must repent to reverse the course of our lives. Then the Holy Spirit brings life to our spirit. You could say that our spirit is in an empty house until the Holy Spirit fills it. We previously operated out of the soul, which is the mind, the will, and the emotions. But now we let the Holy Spirit in our spirit direct our soul, which then directs our body. Seen in this way, we can begin to get a sense of God's longing jealously for us to be wholly His. What a beautiful verse of his love for each one of us. Even when we sin, when we act like Gomer, when we lust after things of this world, the heart of God is grieving over our lack of love for him, over our unfaithfulness to yield to his spirit that's within us. We go from him being our satisfaction to trying to have th that emptiness filled with God's temporary gifts. He yearns jealously over the spirit he put in us that is being ignored. It's as if our spouse quit speaking to us. He longs to be intimate with us again, to have our attention, knowing how our waywardness grieves the God who loves us so, so much, should act as a deterrent to looking anywhere else for satisfaction. Brothers and sisters, if you realized how much you are loved, how God longs for you to see the greatness of his love for you, the extent of which he has gone to to make you his own, you would never try to be satisfied 
with the lying promises of temptations. This jealous spirit inside us, when we sin, he is pained. Furthermore, his jealousy is passionate for the idea in the Greek is that he longs or yearns for us with an intense jealousy. The word sometimes translated as zeal. To realize that the awesomely holy God who transcends the universe is holy, other, and self-contained is at the same time personally and passionately and lovingly jealous for our affection? This realization ought to stop any of our affairs with this world and cause us to prostrate our souls adoringly before him. How we are loved and how we ought to love. For as John informs us, we love because he first loved us. God knows that when we fall for the tempting lies of the satisfaction from this world, we'll be making ourselves his enemy, rejecting his love. And the song that was sung for the offering gives that sense of this verse. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I'm a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And all of a sudden, I'm unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Oh, how he loves us so. How he loves us, how he loves us all. Verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The fact that God is jealous over our spirit he made to dwell in us is a doubly gracious thing. He created us beings with the spirit so that one day after we fell, he could have his home in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. How gracious is that undeserved blessing. But then the fact that he's so jealous for us is another blessing of grace but he gives more grace. How? He opposes the proud. His opposition to the proud is a chance for us to be humbled to enter that grace. It's the opposition the prideful encounter that gives them a chance to humble themselves and enter this beautiful relationship of love, to be humbled people who receive that undeserved love. James does not pull punches. He tells it right like it is. And that can leave us feeling like, like we're too far gone until we read verse six, but he gives more grace. John wrote that of the fullness Jesus of Jesus, the fullness of Jesus, all we received and grace heaped upon grace. 
No matter how far or how long we have fallen, he yearns over the spirit he's put in us with jealousy. He wants us back in his arms. He wants to be your everything. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day's half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His love has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Has your proud heart deceived you into thinking the things of this world are what you should live for? Ask for grace to see what truly matters. Is there a stubborn weakness that declares you're not surrendered to the love of God? Ask for grace to see his great love for you. Have you failed to love Jesus first and foremost? Ask for his grace to do so. And hear the promise. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?